Thanks to Gary and Claire on the Laws of Life show. Excellent show as always. Very, very touching stuff. Um, it's now out and good afternoon. It's 1.05 p.m. and you're now tuned into the Daily Maverick show on Cliff Central. Um, I'll be tuned, I'll be ho- uh, hosting, sorry, uh, Daily Maverick reporter Greg Nicholson and Daily Maverick Africa correspondent Simon Allison. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Kingsley. Um, before we get to our planned, our planned lineup, it's been such a crazy past 24 hours. Greg, I know you've been looking at this. We had some drama at ESCOM. We've seen our Kosatu general secretary, um, dismissed. Uh, what's going on? Well, to start with Kosatu, I think it's one of the biggest political moves in the country that we've seen in recent years. Obviously, there's been, um, factionalism. And there's been infighting in recent years between different, between different camps in Kosatu mm. and, the, the most recent events really started on Sunday when, when Zwanzi Mavavi, General Secretary of the Federation, uh, held his own press conference and he dared the Kasatu, um, um, CEC or Special CSC, the decision-making body where they meet, um, to, to axe him and fire him. And so he really threw down the gauntlet. It was likely on the cards anyway, but he threw down the gauntlet and really, really set the scene for the next chapter in both his life and and the life or or perhaps even destruction and and um split of Kasatu so obviously he once he had this um press briefing uh that was frowned upon by most uh, union and officials um aligned to um Srumut Lamini Kasatu mm. president and when the special CEC met on Monday they they sacked him he's gone after i think it's 16 years at the helm of Kasatu so it is a really, really momentous change. I mean, I mean, you're right. Um, Vavi has been such a sort of force to reckon with in the in the political and labor movement scene in the country. So it'll be quite interesting to, to see sort of what comes next. Do you think this weakens the tripartite alliance at all? I think it certainly does. Obviously, we have to see what happens. Yeah. But he, Vavi, is a leader who is seen to have values and morals, and he just does have a lot of support, particularly from from just working class and workers and union members themselves. I think by far he's the most popular union leader we have in the country Absolutely. and and one of the most known and popular politicians and leaders we have in the whole country. Um, so so the question is now what he does next. Is he going to move to some sort of NUMSA-led federation or, or go to lead the United Front, which is the 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 wing of leftist um, organizations being pushed by uh, NUMSA? Craig, um how much has Vavi been a lame duck in the last couple of years? I mean, he, there's been this ongoing leadership struggle, and, and we, we talk about him like he is this powerful force, because that's what we know him to be. But has he been that over the last few years with all this internal faction fighting? No, he hasn't. I think his credibility has has suffered a, a quite large blow over the last few years, particularly when when the Kasatu officials came out and suspended him and, and, and spread allegations about... Um, mispropriety over, over moving the Kasatu buildings, the old Kasatu house to the new Kasatu house, uh, mismanagement of, of the Federation's funds, as well as, of course, he took a, he took a big knockback, um, when, when he was, he, he admitted to sleeping with a, a junior staff employee yeah. and, which was initially came out through rape allegations. And so in the last two, three years, both Kasatu and Vavi himself have really been in a state of paralysis. 
Um, they haven't been pushing workers' agendas. They haven't been doing what they're elected to do. And on Sunday, we saw Vavi come out and say he's he's going to put the workers first. It doesn't matter what position he's in, he's going to be on the streets. He kept on chanting, chanting this thing, don't mourn, organize. So it'll be interesting to see if we get, we we see the Vavi of old and whether he's able to to continue to garner support even without this position as Kasatu General Secretary. Well, I suppose we'll just keep keep watching and, and see how it plays out. Um, I do want to stick with the issue of of workers and and moving specifically to miners. Um, Greg, you've been working on this. Um, it's we are we are expecting today the report from the Marikana Commission. It's been uh, I suppose just. Two years, I think two years since we, we saw, um, um, striking miners gunned down by police and it's been, it's been a long period to wait to see what comes back, what, what comes back from the commission. Um, I mean, Greg, over the past two years, have there been a sense of, of any kind of justice for some of the fallen miners and their families based on, on this commission and, and as it does its work? Uh, no, Kingsley, I don't think there has been a sense of justice. And it's not just the miners who were killed, the striking miners and the non-striking miners. There are also police officers killed and there are security guards killed. Um, I think a sense of justice has to come with some sort of, some sort of retribution. And we haven't seen any, any police officers killed. I mean, sorry, any, we haven't seen any police officers charged. <laughs> Is that justice in Australia? Yes, that's, that's, that's a different kind of justice. <laughs> So, so we haven't seen any police officers charged or anyone, anyone really moved from their posts for, for what they've done, although some of the senior commanders have sort of been shuffled around mm. a little bit. Mm. But, but instead what we saw was initially, um, hundreds of miners charged with an apartheid, um, law called common purpose where, where they were charged for killing their own comrades and causing their sort of death through, through starting this strike. Um, we've seen other miners charged for, charged for the murders of the non-striking miners. Um, we've seen, we've seen the, those who are injured, um, um, have continually debilitating, um, injuries, uh, that, that, and disabilities that will be with them for life. We've seen the families of the victims, and, and here I talk about from the police to the security guards to the minors, um, suffering financially. And meanwhile, all of these, all of these people have had to sit through around, I think it's 300 days of, of the Marikana Commission of Inquiry. Yeah. And, and which produced about 400,000, I think, pages of, um, of transcripts. And, and so it just sort of seems like not only is justice delayed and deferred, but it's inverted. It seems flipped on its head. It's, it's hard to have any sense of, of how justice can be done now, yeah. but the Americana Commission report is is sort of the last hope. I mean, I know you've been. I mean, I know you are at a lot of the commission sittings, and and I think you probably have a, a decent sense of, of 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 what came out, and and maybe what some of the prosecutors and the people working on this are thinking. I mean, what can we expect? Do we have? Is it? Is it? Is it? Can there any calls we can make of the kind of. Uh, findings we can expect from the commission and, and, and do they have any teeth to immediately prosecute? Does it then become the, the president's decision or, or is there another decision point or basically what happens next? So first, uh, what, what can we expect? It's a little bit hard to say, um, because we had so many different, different legal teams of the commission, all with obviously different viewpoints. Um, it seems that I think, I think it would, or I hope that, um, those officers who pulled the triggers and can be identified with unlawful killings, which, which uh, there was evidence of, um, at, at the Marikana event, uh, will be recommended to be prosecuted. Um, I think the, the police's actions and planning and implementation will be, 
highly criticised. The question is whether any any police leaders will then will then have to face charges. Um, but then, when if if the report does recommend charges, it recommends charges to the president, okay. which would have to go through the national national prosecuting authority. So it won't won't be like if 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 Farlam, um, the the chairman of the commission, recommends charges, it won't just happen instantaneously. It has to go through a whole another process. Okay, so it sounds like despite you know despite the report coming in today, we still have we still have some way to go. Um, we're just about to take a call from Riha Desai, the director of the documentary, the fantastic documentary Minor Shutdown, also working with the Marikana Support Campaign. Riha, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Ah, uh, fantastic. Now, Riyad, you're doing some work with the Marikana Support Campaign, as I mentioned, and and I'd like to hear from you what uh, what what you're hoping for and expecting from the from the findings of the commission. We don't want a sanitised report. We're demanding that the report um, not be edited, be released in its full form, full report, unedited, to the public before the end of uh, April. The failure to do so will mean that we will be uh, every place. Uh, every place the president or the deputy president appears publicly, we will be there with our placards, leaflets, megaphones, shouting and demanding the, the release of this report. We're very worried, one, that he has the right not to release the report. Um, I think given the magnitude of the event, it's unlikely that he won't. But we are deeply concerned, given the track record of this government, that they might attempt to try and uh, sit on the report for a while and release it in a strategic manner which takes the attention away from it. So when it's, you know, at a time where the news is flooded with uh, some of the big uh, current affairs events of the world or, or in South Africa. Now, Rihad, you're quite close to this issue and, and also quite close to certain miners um, who have been involved in, in Marikana and, and around there. Do, what, what, what do some of the miners and those close to the, to, to the issue think of this report? Do they still believe that it's going to give them any sense of justice or, or are they resigned um, to, to having no hope? No, I think there's a tremendous... Uh, what we saw today was uh, a lot of police in Marikana um, because the police recognise, as we do, the tremendous amount of uh, expectation uh, that's contained in uh, amongst the community and the mine workers in this report. But somehow this report's going to fix a lot of things, not only their working conditions and uh, the, the, the issue of justice and the police get prosecuted and London senior managers and the politicians are, are brought to book and so on, um, uh, but a whole array, uh, you know, a whole array of uh, issues that affect their lives on a daily basis, their community and so on. So there has been a tremendous amount of a testimony from a wide sector of South African society, in, in, including community organisations and the security guards, the police, the strikers, the UMCU, the NUM, uh, the environmental groups, the policing experts. The list goes on and on. And this report is really a very important report. And we do expect at least some recommendations that uh, are going to be uh, hard-hitting. Whether uh, I, I agree with you, they're not going, it's not going to go far enough, but maybe it's a start for, the, for, for justice to be done. 
We had now you mentioned you mentioned society's involvement on the issue. Um, your your film Miners Shot Down has been widely received and and as, as a positive film, it's got a lot of recognition. But then America, the Americana issue, often a lot of us despair that there isn't enough attention on it. How have you found the reception for your film? Have you found that people really want to know more and get involved um, in in issues around Americana and the massacre? The film's been fantastic in the sense it's been able to really root the root the campaign. Um, and, you know, we showed an early version of this to the metal workers in the end of 2013, a few months before we officially released the film. And, uh, you know, they've endorsed the call for justice for the prosecution for the, uh, of the police minister, the firing of the police minister, firing of the police commissioner, and for justice to be done and raised uh, significant money for the widows. And that's what uh, organized sections of civil society have been doing all around the country, uh, you know, we've got Equal Education, Treatment Action Campaign, Section 27, um, other unions involved now. It's, it's really taken hold. So we've certainly got a, uh, a specific, but still a small, uh, relatively small section of civil society behind us. The churches are, are, are slowly uh, coming on board, with organizing screenings on a weekly basis around the country. So... Things are picking up, but the you know this film, given its acclaim and everything, is rather shocking that uh, public TV, free-to-air TV, are not uh, don't have the sufficient independence to to screen it, despite winning awards from uh, their own you know their own awards, the South African Film and TV Awards that they sponsor. You, you, you know, you, you seem to be very interested in social issues, social justice issues in South Africa. When you look around, what else is is going on? You know, we know that Marikana is not getting the attention it deserves. What other issues are also being swept under the carpet and sort of ignored by the public? I think, again, part of the reason why the, the Marikana support campaign uh, has been taking off and why the film in particular is because it speaks to the wider issues, one of uh, you know the the attempt to criminalise protest, stop communities protesting, uh, arrest people from for public violence on, on on very spurious evidence or no evidence at all. Uh, so we're really facing a, a police force which has been increasingly militarised, uh, despite what happened at Marikana, despite the lip service from government. We've now got paramilitary units in, in, in the, inside the public order policing. We've got uh, the, the bigger issues, really, which I think really sits at the centre of the rage of South African society, which is generating the sort of highest levels of strike figures in the world, strike statistics in the world. Um, the, the most amount of civic protests are happening in, in South Africa and worldwide. So we're really at the top of the league when it comes to uh, township service delivery protests, as, as they're called, and, uh, and and strikes. And this is the yawning gap between the rich and the poor, and the haves and the have-nots. And uh, I don't think that's going to go away any time soon. And what we're seeing is a hardening of uh, police uh, action towards both strike strikers and and more particularly 
And, and Rihad, one of the things I think that was striking from your film, as well as uh, being involved with the Marikana Commission, is how how little the ANC and, and the state leaders want to take responsibility for what happened or even engage with it. Um, we saw Cyril Ramaphosa, Natiam Tetwa, Susan Shabangu, President Zuma. I think all of their all of their responses were were direly inadequate. Are you concerned that even if the commission does recommend? Perhaps all, all the charges that, that, uh, groups like Americana Support Campaign or, or lawyers like Dali and Poffo were calling for, that, that the state leaders will simply ignore them or, or brush them aside? Yes, I think the, the report is one thing. Um, you know, getting those recommendations followed through and pressurizing the NPA and, uh, the other institutions which are, are there to ensure effective accountability and transparency. Uh, presently being undermined left, right and centre by uh, factions inside the ANC and the ruling party and government is going to be a tremendous task. Um, it's going to be a tremendous task when you take into account that Marikana, the word Marikana, was mentioned once at the last big ANC uh, elective conference at the end of 2012. Where, where they elected Sir Ramaphosa as deputy president, of course. Exactly, yeah, and that speaks to um, the, 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 their low regard for this uh, issue. I think it speaks to a, um, but it also speaks to a, I think, rather a mass uh, confusion in our society about actually what happened. You know, most people are under the impression um before they see the film, you know, those who haven't been following in detail the, what's been appearing in the press, um, that the police had no option but to defend themselves, that um, it's really um, the, the miners had their fair share of blame, particularly in the fact that, you know, 10 lives were lost in, in the lead-up to this. There's no understanding of how these lives were lost. And on every occasion that the miners, the strikers fought back, uh, they were being attacked physically with firepower from either the police or the mine security or, or indeed uh, NUM. So um, uh, hopefully the, the report will shed some light um, and we'll be able to do a summary of, of some of its findings and and it, it, its recommendations, but it critically engage also uh, where it's lacking in terms of recommendations, where it's lacking in terms of its, its findings. So, you know, Greg, there's a saying that truth always has a way of coming out, yeah. and um, it will take some... In all probability, it will take a good few months, most likely a good few years, hopefully not uh, decades, as in the case there was other big events of this sort where the, the truth uh, seeps out and people are found to be lying and concealing evidence and so on. Um, but um, I think this this has caused tremendous ruptures inside of the African National Congress. It led uh, Julius Malema to be confident enough to to break and take his supporters 
from the Anti Youth League within into the EFF. It's led to the rupture uh, for the NUMSA to refuse to support uh, the ANC any longer, and uh, uh, and, um, and of late, Bavi's uh, expulsion from Kasatsu. We will now see the beginnings, I believe, of a, a new federation talks about a new trade union centre. We will uh, very shortly be having the first conference of the those socialists to independent socialists outside of the ANC uh, who have now got a, a very deep-rooted support base inside of the, the trade union movement, one of the most powerful sectors of civil society. So I'm not too worried about whether the ANC uh, are prepared to uh, embrace uh, this reality and, and, and face the truth. I think the, the, the bigger reality is that the ANC will not be forced to, um, on any genuine degree of introspection, until they're out of power, because what's happened is that they've been captured by a faction of the BEE tycoons who have centred themselves around uh, Jacob Zuma, and uh, I would include Sir Ramaphosa and Patrice Mutepi uh, and others in that and they've become they will not do anything or say anything which contradicts the um, key core interest of, of capital in South yeah. Africa. And, and so Riyad, on, on the one hand then we have we have these sort of set of elites who who are happy to keep the status quo or, or keep things going as long as it benefits their own means. And on the other hand, we have the need for the truth to come out. But what sort of role do you think, um, I, I guess, uh, directors and, and creatives like yourself have in bringing this truth out? Because, and, and actually just teaching people about what happened in Marikana. Because last night as I was sitting down to write, um, there's so much that happened there and so much to say. And so, especially now we've had the commission, there's so much detail and evidence. How? What role do we have in ter- in terms of translating all of this and filtering it into the public discourse? I think the key thing that we have to get busy with um, while we're waiting for this report is to lay out very clearly, in an accessible manner, what we think the recommendation should be, and to try and build as much consensus among the legal teams that were. Uh, representing the victims of, of the massacre um, as possible. So we get the widest array of, of consensus on those who were involved uh, with the victims at, at the massacre. And we make that as public as possible. But we use the report once it's come out <coughs> to, um, you know, can be combined with screenings of the film. So we, we show the film and then we give a summary of, of, of what, what the report said. And um, and that can be done in people's front rooms, in you know, small community halls, in reading groups, in women's groups, church groups, whatever. Um, to engage the report critically, because the, the, the most important thing in, in the long term is that we never forget what happened how it happened and and in, in understanding in some detail how, how it happened we can figure out why it happened 
so we make uh, that history uh, the dominant uh, discourse on on the Maritana massacre. And if we can do that, possibly, you know, we can make sure that uh, this doesn't again uh, happen in South Africa, where a corporation is used uh, uses it political leverage, in this instance through Cyril Ramaphosa, to get the state to use its firepower against the very citizens who it's uh, supposed to be serving. And, and Rihad, um, I guess one way to understand uh, what happened and how it happened is to view your fantastic documentary, Mine Shut Down. Can you tell us where that's available? And I understand you've had it translated into multiple languages now. Yes, uh, in, in uh, <clears throat> we're just now, uh, after our Zimbabwe tour, uh, applying uh, for some funds to get it made into Shona. We had a, a great response there. They're facing similar problems with their own mining industry, particularly the diamonds. But it's in South Africa, and, uh, it's available in Isikosa and Afrikaans. Um, uh, not in the shops, but uh, if they get onto our website, minusshotdown.co.za or maricanajustice.co.za, um, you'll find out uh, how you can get those, those those copies. The English version um, is available through kalahari.net. Um, exclusive can be ordered from some of the exclusive bookstores or are stocking the, the, the DVD. Jakarta Media is the distributor. Uh, a number of independent bookshops, the university bookshops and stuff, are also uh, stock the DVD. So uh, alternatively, if you can't, if you're not near one of those shops or you, don't, you haven't got a credit card for Kalahari.net, get hold of us and uh, you can buy it from us through, through the website. Fantastic. Riyad, thank you so much, for, not only for this interview, but for the excellent work you've been doing. Um, we'll continue to follow the proceedings as the report comes up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Fantastic. You. Um, just before we go to the break, we've got um, a, a question off WeChat from Big Booty Bender. Uh, and he says he's enjoying the show. He's been listening every week. And he wants to know what we think of the what we spoke about last week, actually, and the, the, the road statue issue and the, and the, and the roads must fall campaign. Um, I think last week a lot of our 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 concerns were that that the the movement would just become about the statue and it would lose the it would lose the the white the, the the deeper the deeper need which was for true transformation but, uh, but, at, the, at the institution. Yes, correct. I've I've been heartened by the the Rhodes Moss Falls statue, not yeah. because I really care about the Rhodes statue, yeah. but I think it has been interesting to say that this is a uh, an example and a legacy and almost celebrating of of negative a- aspects of South Africa's history, um, but I think I've been heartened that it's opened the discussion for much more dis- much more conversation about transformation issues both at universities and in society. And I think that's what the where the conversation needs to continue. If this thing is a fad, it's it's a rather useless protest. But, but if the conversation can continue Absolutely. about debating transformation in universities and broader society, something that the youth I think are really confronting when when you get into adulthood, then I think it's a positive. You know, universities are the sort of um they're where political movements are forged so mm. often. You know, think of the uh, University of Fort Hare, which which so many ANC leaders came from. Mm. Um, 
And to see university students actually taking interest in politics and not just petty party politics, you know, but actual that this is a real issue um, with a lot of different perspectives and students are involved in it and engaged in it and they're coming up with pretty radical ideas and it's wonderful to see and I think it's heartening for the future of this country. You know, we've sort of in a place at the moment where South Africa seems to be running out of, of, of new political ideas. You know, we've got the ANC, we've got the DA, and then we've got the EFF, which is, of course, something completely different. Yeah. And then now we're getting this, this more of a student-based political movement, mm-hmm. political voices coming through, and that can only be a good thing in the long run, Absolutely. whatever happens to the bloody statue. <laughs> <laughs> Exciting times. A big thank you to Big Booty Bender. Keep listening in. <laughs> Uh, yeah, please, please call us in on 0861-555-189. You can also reach us on Twitter on at Mzanzi Masai. That's M-Z-A-N-S-I-M-A-A-S-A-I or cliffcentral.com. Uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back just now. On radio. On We are just actually all stunned here. I'm not sure what Dan our producer just did. We have the reincarnation of, I don't know, Randy MC in the studio. He was actually scratching vinyls with the Cliff Central jingle. This is incredible. Like, we just, Duncan, 10 points for you, man. 10 points for you. Cheers, man. Um, so you're back listening to the Cliff Central show on Daily. M- oh, that's fantastic. The Daily Maverick show on Cliff Central. Wrong <laughs> way around. Uh, you remember you can call us in on 0861-555-189. You can also reach us on Twitter on cliffcentral.com and at Mzanzi Masai. We spent the first half of the show mostly talking local, what's going on at Kosatu and also looking forward to the Marikana, uh, uh, commission report coming out today. Now we want to go continental. Luckily, we're joined by the, the, the king and all-knower of all things Africa, Simon Allison. Um, I like that title. Oh, that, man, you are our everything, man. This is just more of the African big man syndrome. All of a sudden, <laughs> yeah, exactly. we put Simon on, on the level of a king. I'm, if you're not careful, I'm going to con- personally contest the Nigerian election. Well. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Speaking of the Nigerian elections, Simon, um, this is being described as Africa's most important election. Is that just hyperbole or is this really something for all the countries on the continent to actually be watching? No, this is, this is pretty serious. Um, I thought Lesotho was the, was the election <laughs> that was going to determine the continent's future. No? Only that, that was the LA Times woman. Oh, oh that's that was, right. that was, that's right. Um, God knows what, what she must be saying about Nigeria. Or <laughs> yeah. the some, galaxy. Probably not even there. It's already decided. Lesotho was decided. Exactly. So, Nigeria, yeah, Nigeria, tell us, tell us, where tell us. do we even begin? Um, 
Look, it's it's interesting at the moment. We're about halfway through the counting process, mm. a little bit over halfway now because a few more results have been released. And the latest is that the challenger, Muhammadu Buhari, is looking pretty damn good. He is ahead in terms of the number of states that he's won. He's something like 2.5 million votes ahead in the overall total. And um, the turnout in his stronghold has been huge. It's been much improved on last time around, whereas the turnout in President Goodluck Jonathan's strongholds has been dramatically reduced. In one state, I think it was Emo State, um, the turnout went from 82% in 2011 to 41% in wow. 2015. That's a huge drop, an and, and almost unbelievable drop. And there's been a lot of uh, rumors going around that that 82% figure included a significant number of ghost votes. So I'm sure that'll be a, a subject for investigation later in the day. But the breaking news, sort of just as we were, were coming onto the show, mm. is that the PDP, the People's Democratic Party, the ruling party, are now contesting the results already. Their party agent at the Independent National Electoral Commission went on stage and um, told the, the, the head of the Electoral Commission to stop announcing the results, told him that he was a partial observer, and told him that he should stop being tribalistic. Now, this is all a very dangerous, worrying sign. And what correspondents who are there are saying is, last night, the PDP representatives were pretty calm. They were like, we've got this in the bag, no worries, you know. It's going to be a bit tighter than last time, but we're still going to win. This morning, they're starting to realize that there is a pretty good chance that they're not going to win this thing, that they are actually going to lose. And so now they're starting to throw their toys out of the cot. I think the big test is going to be over the course of the rest of today and tomorrow as the final results become known. I don't think either party is going to be well disposed towards accepting the outcome peacefully. If Buhari wins, then of course, good luck Jonathan's side are going to cry foul as they already are. If Buhari loses from this strong position, mm. it's going to look very suspicious and his supporters are going to treat it as very suspicious and be not too happy. Let's remember that in 2011, Somewhere between 800 and 1,000 people were killed in post-election violence in Nigeria. That's a lot of people. And the stakes were significantly lower then than they are now. So we've got much higher stakes. We've got um, a lot more contention between the, the two parties. There's still a long way for Nigeria to go, basically, is, is what we're saying at the moment. So I just want to go back to the – was it was the PBC um – Candidate who who has decided that they're contesting the elections. Yeah, that's PDP. PDP. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Who uh, I think I've mixed up the parties. <laughs> Formed one unitary party. <laughs> who who have decided to contest the elections? But we saw the US and the UK already issue a warning of disturbing trends of vote rigging or potential vote rigging. Um, is there not grounds to potentially contest these results? Look, there have been a lot of dodgy things go on. Um, we see that in most elections. We saw a couple of strange. Um, strange situations, even in the South African election. There were certainly a few things in Lesotho. Um, in Zimbabwe, there was plenty of dodgy things going on. The question is, are those significant enough to affect the overall outcome? Because let's be honest, strange things happen in pretty much every election. Um, 
there's a little bit of vote rigging. There's a little bit of confusion that happens everywhere. So are those enough to invalidate the entire result? And so far, what observer groups are saying, including the EU, including the Commonwealth Observer Mission, is that, yes, there, there are a few signs for concern, but we don't think it's going to um, change things in the bigger picture. The U.S. is a different story. What the U.S. has come out and said is that the election itself was fine. There were some problems, but it was fine. But they are worried that during the collation process, that's that's counting all the votes, putting them all together, that there is room for dodgy business. They didn't say that, that dodgy business has happened, just that there is still potential for it to happen. So it was a really interesting statement. I, th- I think it was John Kerry, um, the Secretary mm. of State, that came out and said it. The Nigerian officials were quite shocked, weren't they? Uh, they were. And, I, I, you know, with reason, I think, um, at such an early stage in the process, without any kind of proof to back it up, it kind of invalidates the process before it's even finished. Yeah. And it also hands to the loser a um, sort of guilt-edged opportunity to contest the vote. Add some um, legitimacy to their grievances. Add some legitimacy. You know, it's a, you know, well, the U.S. said that, the US that there said, was a problem. Absolutely. So it's it's a really interesting one. I'm not I'm not too sure what what game they're playing at the moment. And I have a feeling uh, John Kerry may be being wrapped over the knuckles because he he may have spoken a little bit out of turn there. Okay, Simon. Just uh, God forbid that violence does escalate. But if it does, what what should we expect? Will we see sort of some large civil war, or will it just be people fighting on the streets? What what what's what's in store potentially? I think we can go from the sort of twenty eleven pattern, which is that most of the violence happened in sort of central and northern areas, which is not exclusively, but more of a Buhari stronghold. Um, not so much in, in the deep south. And I think it'll take the form of rioting, maybe attacks on buildings. Um, hopefully it will not sort of escalate into attacks between various ethnic communities, yeah. um, like we saw in, in Kenya in, was it 2008? Um, because that has, if, if that starts happening, then that has the potential to snowball things into, into a much greater, um, problem than it was before. And of course, the, the other threat of violence comes from Boko Haram. Yeah, I did want to ask about that. I mean, they had, they had sworn that they will not allow the election to happen. Um, and, and they tried to make good on this by, by, by killing, I think, 40 people. Um, was, I find that interesting that this election is still being seen as relatively peaceful despite the, the body count already being at fault. Well, <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's perspective. So, I guess there's two things. One is that, 14 people is a tragedy, and I think it's actually more than 14. It, it's up towards it's 30. 40. It's 40. I think it's 40. 40, yeah. Yes, I, I think it's around there. Um, it's a tragedy, but it's it's the kind of damage that Boko Haram has been inflicting in Nigeria on a weekly, weekly, even occasionally daily basis. So this is just business as usual, which is a horrifying thought in and of itself. Yeah. But what it means is that the election has not precipitated a surge in violence. There hasn't been a huge dramatic upswing in attacks over the selection period. That's the first thing. The second thing is when Goodluck Jonathan postponed the elections for six weeks. Because remember they were meant to happen on <coughs> Valentine's Day. And then they were postponed for six weeks and everybody said, oh, this is the death of Nigerian democracy. Mm. Um, and there's no way that he can tackle Boko Haram in six weeks. six weeks. And you know what's happened? Is he has. 
He's really contained them. Um, and I don't actually think it's him, to be honest. And he I, called I him Chad the, and involved some few other countries. Um, and, so and I think the, the big players have been Chad. The other big players have been South African uh, private security contractors. Um, mercenaries. Some would say mercenaries. <laughs> but, AKA uh, mercenaries. Um, for legal reasons, we shall uh, not <laughs> be the people who say mercenaries. Who say mercenaries. Deal. But, you know, there really has... I think what, what good luck did is he finally put his hand up and said, we can't deal with this, we need help. And he accepted the help. And that really has yes. pushed Boko Haram out of strongholds. It has kept them pinned into specific areas. It's made it hard for them to move across the terrain. And I think it has made the election a lot safer than it would have been this time six weeks ago. So some credit is due to the government. Why they couldn't have done this yes. a long that's time ago question. is the big question. And that's what's a, worrying. That, that's quite damning against the government. That if they can do this now, you think they could have done this strategy. And save, how many lives the could they have saved years. if exactly. they did this you know, and, and, ago. and when you start getting um, mixing counterterrorism strategy in with your political campaign strategy, that is a really, really dangerous territory to be in and not, it's, it's not a good look. And, and I think it's also, what he did was obvious. Um, people in Nigeria could see that, that it was quite a callous tactic. Um, they're not stupid. They can see that if he can fix it now, he could have fixed it ages ago. Yeah. Or at least he could have done more ages ago. And I think that is why we're seeing such a, oh, it's a big factor in, in why there's such a drop in turnout for Jonathan in his stronghold areas. Absolutely. I think, I think my last question is this, uh, is just about Muhammadu Buhari. Um, uh, he wasn't in, in uh, running the country as the head of the army, um, in the eighties. Um, it's been a while and he seems to have made a comeback. Um, what do we know about him? What do we know about his politics? Do, do we have any idea of what, what we can expect? Should he, should he win, uh, you know, a, a clean win, no runoffs? Should he win? Do we know what we can expect as a region, as South Africa? What can we expect? And can we trust him considering that he was somewhat of a dictator before? It's, a, it's a, it's a bizarre story, isn't it? From military dictator to champion of democracy. Uh, champion of democracy. <laughs> but, but we have seen this before. Uh, People change. Olusegun Obasanjo. You know, he is now an elder statesman of African diplomacy. He was the sort of founder of, of the Democratic yeah. Republic. Mm. Um, but he was a military dictator Absolutely. before that as well. So Nigeria seems to have a, um, you know, uh, people seem to be able to, to reinvent themselves. Um, they can resurrect themselves. I wonder how much TB Joshua has to do has with that. Um, but so what can we expect from Buhari? This is the interesting thing. And I think that we don't really know. If you look at the policies of the parties, they're not worlds apart. They both talk about the same things. They talk about corruption. They talk about resuscitating the economy. They talk about creating more jobs. They talk about um, dealing with the insecurity. Now, all good things. Where the ruling party is in trouble is it has a track record of not delivering on these promises. Yeah. Buhari, on the other hand, offers change. He offers a different face. He offers a different set of officials. And he says he's going to do things properly. He's not going to, you know, fall into the old Nigerian traps of patronage and corruption and nepotism. Um, he's going to do things his way. And that's really what Nigerians are voting for. They are not voting for new policies um, or new ideas. They're just voting for change because the PDP has failed and been seen to fail over several decades. Um, Buhari 
is a it's a gamble still because he is a military dictator. He does come from that corrupted political elite. That 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 is where he forged his career. So will he be that much different? I'm not so sure. But it'll still be refreshing to have a new face. Absolutely. I mean, we'll continue to watch, and 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 I think we'll really be closely watching the whether there's a runoff. Is there not? Will there be violence? And I think we're just really hoping that everything goes smoothly. I'm on to quiz switch to another of the African powerhouses, switching to East Africa and 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 see what's going on in Kenya. Now, now, Simon, I'm wondering what's going on, what's going on over there. We we saw a report handed to Uhuru Kenyatta from the Ethics and Anti-Corruption Commission, and and we've seen, you know, I think over a dozen. Uh, senior cabinet secretaries and governors, including the governor of Nairobi, being asked to step aside. Uh, what's going on? Is the government still functioning? What's happening? Forgive me. Yes. I'm cynical. Okay. And I look at this. You know, this this is Kenyatta's big moment. This is the time when the president of Kenya is stepping forward and saying, you know what? I've had enough of corruption. I'm going to sort it out, and I'm going to sort it out in the most public way possible. Absolutely. You know, I'm going to get these guys to um, resign or step aside while the investigation is going on, and I'm going to make their names public. I'm going to make this report public. It's it's all good things on the surface. But then you look a bit deeper, and you start asking a few questions. The first is, well, okay, if these guys have been implicated in some kind of corruption, they haven't been charged. No. There's been no judicial investigation. They haven't been found guilty. They've just been implicated in a report. And and now the judicial process will take its toll. Um, and Uhuru Kenyatta wants them to step aside. I'm all in favor of that. I think that's a good move. But did Uhuru Kenyatta step aside when he was implicated in crimes against humanity? Did William Ruto, his deputy, step aside when he was implicated in crimes against humanity? The answer, of course, is no. What both of those polit- politicians did was they actually ran for president and deputy and increased their power. Absolutely. So the, the, the precedent that Kenyatta has set in that department is a bit dodgy. Then look at Kenyatta's history. Son of Jomo Kenyatta, the, the founding father of the Kenyan nation. And Jomo Kenyatta did a lot of pretty good things for Kenya. But he wasn't so hot on corruption. Like the, the, the state, the, the sort of the, the way that corruption is embedded into the Kenyan state at, at so many different levels, that, well, that process began during Jomo Kenyatta's rule. Jomo Kenyatta also benefited from some very suspicious land deals, which made him one of the, la- his family, one of the largest landowners in the country. Absolutely. Kenyatta, Uhuru Kenyatta, his son, is now one of the wealthiest men in Africa. This puts him Beyond needing to be corrupt, you know, he's got $500 million plus minus in the bank. He doesn't need, you know, a few backhanders here or there. So he can afford not to be corrupt. But the reality is that his entire wealth um, and his political position, let's not forget, comes from a corrupt background and from a sort of nepotistic background as well. Um, and so it's, it's hard to hear him preaching against corruption when he has benefited so much from it. And then the third point, and this is probably the most significant, mm. is that who are these people that have been fingered in this corruption probe? And a few Kenyan newspapers have come out and said, well, you know what? If you look at the names, it's almost all Ruto's allies. 
It's Ruto's men. So this is the the deputy president and the president are, are in an alliance, but they both have their own separate constituencies and power bases. And the the theory is that that what Kenyatta is doing now is he's using the, the pretext of this corruption drive to actually um, root out any kind of opposition within his own administration. So to make sure that his administration is entirely staffed of his men and that William Ruto, um, his power base is decimated. But wouldn't that be shooting himself in the foot given the alliance? I mean, is that, or is it, is it something looking forward to the next well, election? The, the, idea, How would this work? the yeah. idea is that the, the alliance has passed its sell by date. The alliance was necessary when Kenyatta and Ruto were both at The Hague facing, um, ICC charges. Absolutely. Kenyatta no longer is facing ICC charges. Those have been dropped. Um, Probably they shouldn't have been dropped, but there was a lot of very dodgy witness intimidation, bribery, and corruption involved in that process. Now, that means Kenyatta is off the hook. Ruto is still on the hook. And I think that what that means now is Ruto has become, he's gone from an asset, you know, because the two of them were in it together fighting against the evil imperialists. Now for Kenyatta, he'd rather just be shot of this whole ICC thing. He'd rather not have the ICC in his life, in his in his immediate political environment because it is still a, a massively controversial issue. So I think that this is the beginning of the end for the alliance and uh, the start of Kenyatta cutting Ruto out of the process and uh, possibly leaving Ruto to fend for himself at the ICC. Simon, I think we started this conversation. I was feeling pretty optimistic. <laughs> now it sounds like it's all politically motivated and it's, and it's all really politicky. I mean, is there any chance that there's some inkling of a genuine attempt to clean up politics in the country? I, I hope so. And I hope that, that what this does is it sets a precedent. And that the precedent is, if you become involved in these, these high profile scandals, then you do step aside. You do step down. You don't just hold on for dear life. That's a good precedent to set. Mm. Um, and, and the, the other is, is just that, you know, even if, no, no, people, no one's suggesting that the, the, the investigation from the, um, the ethics committee has been made up. Um, so these people are implicated in real things. Um, so even if it is politically motivated, there are still allegedly corrupt people being brought to some kind of account, and that's a good thing. Yeah. So, so the lesson seems to be that if you are corrupt, make sure you have the right allies. Yeah, the right side. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. Guys, that's all time we have, all the time we have today. Um, thanks for coming in. Um, Simon Allison, Greg Nicholson, uh, amazing guests as always. Thanks for having us. Uh, fantastic. Um, please, please, please continue to download the podcast and engage on, on WeChat and on Twitter and, and we'll see you next week. I think next up we're joined by the Hauteng Debating League and we'll let them, you know, get started. So uh, thanks for listening in. We'll see you next week. Stay informed and up to date. It's the Daily Maverick Show, Tuesdays, 1 to 2 p.m. on cliffcentral.com.